Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the uh, book of Ruth and chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4, and we'll read from verse 1. Ruth chapter 4 and verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat there, and behold, the Redeemer, or the kinsman Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal, gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Amen. Amen, O God, will always bless the reading of his own inspired word. So this morning, as we approach the close of our studies in Ruth, we come to Boaz's negotiations with the uh, kinsman redeemer at the city gate. Someone has said the book of Ruth opens with three funerals and finishes with a wedding. But before that wedding can take place, some delicate negotiations need to uh, be had to secure legally the hand of Ruth in marriage. You remember that in chapter 3, Ruth had gone at night, uh, at harvest time, uh, into the threshing floor. She had lay at Boaz's feet, and then she said, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer, or spread the corner of your garment over me. And that was a Hebrew euphemism for marriage. Marry me, she said to Boaz on that particular night. Now, the reason why Ruth makes this audacious um, um, proposal to Boaz, something that would have been unheard of 
in uh, uh, ancient times was because she was or he was the family redeemer or a family redeemer now there was a problem because even though Boaz was a kinsman redeemer, there was a kinsman redeemer closer than him that had first bite of the cherry, who had the responsibility to redeem Naomi and Ruth. Look at verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer of chapter 3, and it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Now think of this for a moment or two. Here are two people very much attracted to each other, very much in love. We know that because Ruth had taken the initiative and made this proposal of marriage to Boaz. She was attracted to him and to his character. It wasn't just for financial gain that she made that proposal of marriage. And also, when you do a little bit of detective work, Boaz had uh, uh, investigated Ruth enough and Naomi enough to know that there was a redeemer closer than him. So he'd obviously done his homework, and he'd done his homework because he was attracted to, to Ruth. And yet, in spite of their feelings and their love for one another, they were, they were determined to do what was right in God's eyes. The Word of God had priority over their uh, feelings and their uh, emotions. It seems from chapter 4 that this unnamed kinsman redeemer was not aware of Naomi or Ruth, or maybe just uh, aware of Ruth. And, uh, and Boaz and Ruth might have been tempted just to go ahead and get married. Who would know? Who would know? If Boaz and Ruth just sneaked off and eloped and got married, who would know? Who would care? God would know, and God would care. And Ruth and Boaz were determined to do everything right in accordance with the Word of God. The Word of God had priority even over their feelings. If this kinsman redeemer had have uh, redeemed uh, Naomi and Ruth, uh, both Boaz and Ruth would have been bitterly disappointed. But pleasing God was their first priority. Now, doing what is right is not always easy. And sometimes it calls for sacrifice. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is the right thing. Now, of course, we know about the happy ending that the hero gets the heroine. But let me just remind you that Ruth and Boaz didn't know the ending at this particular time. As Ruth waited with Naomi, she didn't know who she would have as a husband at the end of that day. Her beloved Boaz or this unnamed kinsman redeemer. And as Boaz sat at the town gate and the kinsman redeemer uh, uh, said those words, I will redeem it. Uh, Boaz's heart must have sunk into his sandals. But both Ruth and Boaz were, were prepared to do what was right, to obey God and leave the consequences with him. The law of God the Word of God, the will of God came first. 
Now, what I want to do this morning is contrast uh, Boaz's willing, wholehearted obedience to the Word of God with that of the unnamed kinsman redeemer in chapter 4. If you look at chapter 4, we find Boaz, true to his word, going to the town gate. Now, as I mentioned uh, in our previous study, the town gate was the judicial setting uh, in Israel. It was the place where legal matters uh, were settled and decisions were resolved. But when the kinsman redeemer approached, uh, Boaz called to him in a friendly tone, and he asked him to take his seat, these stone seats that were outside uh, the uh, town gate that acted as the courtroom. He also invited 10 elders to join them who would act as independent witnesses uh, for any agreement that was made. And then the business began. Now, I want to examine this man, this unnamed kinsman redeemer, under three headings. His responsibility before the Word of God, the reasons for his neglect of the Word of God, and the result of his disobedience to the Word of God. So first of all, his responsibility before the Word of God. Now, you'll remember in our last study, the primary responsibilities of the uh, kinsman redeemer were threefold, that he had to redeem from poverty, from slavery, and from extinction. Now, since neither Ruth nor Naomi were yet slaves, although that was a real possibility, uh, Boaz, on their behalf, asked the Redeemer to fulfill his obligations and to redeem from poverty and extinction. And he does that in a two-step process, redeem, uh, to redeem from poverty. Look at verse uh, 3 and verse 4. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, now notice he doesn't say Ruth, notice he just says Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Now, verse 3 is difficult to translate. It may be that Elimelech's land already had been sold and Boaz is asking the man to redeem it back. It may be that when Naomi returned to Bethlehem, somebody else was farming her land and she needed to compensate the farmer that was on her land. Or it may be that she was selling uh, all future rights of the land. You remember after 50 years, the year of Jubilee, all land had to be returned to the original family. And it may be that she was in such dire need and desperate circumstances that she decided the only way to have um, any future was to sell all future rights to the land. And, uh, and so this kinsman redeemer is asked to redeem from poverty by redeeming the land. Now, this was required uh, in the law of God. We read these verses last week, but let's just turn back to them, to Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 23. Leviticus 25, verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall not allow a redemption of the land. Or, sorry, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, 
Then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem it, uh, redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, then he himself, uh, and then he himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it. Let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man whom he sold it and return to him his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he has sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of jubilee. In the year of jubilee it shall be released and be shall, shall return and, and he shall re- return to his uh, property. So the land belonged to God. And it had to remain in the uh, hands of the original families to which it was originally allocated. If sold, the nearest redeemer could purchase it back for the original holder. Now, this is what the man in Ruth 4 is willing to do. He says, I will redeem it. He is quite prepared to fulfill his first obligation as the kinsman redeemer. I will redeem it. But not only had he a responsibility to redeem from poverty, as we noticed uh, last week, but from extinction. Look at verse uh, 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name. There's just one thing, says Boaz. There's a woman who comes with the field. And as her kinsman redeemer, you have a responsibility to provide an heir for her dead husband. This was known as the Leverite law. Lever is the word for brother in Latin. And uh, it it meant that that a brother, if if a man died, a brother had a responsibility to uh, provide an heir for that dead man that his name might live on in Israel. I turn with me to Deuteronomy 25. We didn't look this up last week, but Deuteronomy 25, because I think this is important. Deuteronomy 25, uh, verse 5. This is the Leverite law. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she will answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now you remember the sandal and the exchange that took place in Ruth chapter 4. Now, at that point, the unnamed kinsman redeemer backs off. Uh, and he says, you redeem it for yourself. Do you, do you see what the problem was? He, he thought he was going to get the land. He was going to get 
Naomi. He assumed that Naomi was postmenopausal, and he didn't realize that he had a, 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 a younger. There was a younger woman, woman Ruth, who he had a duty to provide a son for, that her uh, husband's name might be carried on in Israel. So according to the law, his obligation was twofold, to purchase the property from Naomi and to provide an heir for the dead man to carry on his name. Now the problem with this man was he was prepared to obey and fulfill the law as long as it suited him. His obedience was partial. His obedience was selective. He, he had an a la carte view uh, to the law of God. Uh, that you go through the Bible and you pick out the bits that suit you and you ignore the bits that disturb you or unsettle you or are displeasing to you. There are things in Scripture that are unpalatable, undesirable, objectionable, the hard sayings of the Scriptures. And yet God calls us to submit to all of His Word, to all of His teaching, not just the bits that please us. Remember Jesus said in the um, Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them uh, all, all that I have commanded you. Do you remember uh, Joshua when he's being called and commissioned to take over from Moses? Be courageous, do not be afraid, and be careful to obey all the law my uh, servant Moses gave you. Our attitude should never be to set ourselves up over Scripture as judges of Scripture so that we only take those parts of Scripture that are pleasing to us. That we accept all of the Word of God in its entirety. That we're not selective in our, our reading and in our application of the Word of God. People, unbelievers do that all the time. You know, they say, oh, well, when it comes to the Bible, I, I don't like the teaching of Paul and I don't like the teaching of Peter, but I, I love the Sermon on the Mount. And really what they mean by the Sermon on the Mount is the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself and, and uh, turn the other cheek. The, 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 the bits about judgment and rejection and hungering and, thirst after, uh, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, they, they ignore. They're selective in their ap application of the Word of God. Well, Christians can be like that. That they take out the bits that they, uh, they want and they know that they, they reject everything else. His responsibility before the Word of God. The second thing I want you to notice are the reason, uh, is the reason for his rejection of the Word of God. Why did this man refuse to redeem Naomi, uh, Naomi and Ruth? Well, the answer is threefold. First of all, the cost was too high. Look at verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. You see, originally this man thought this was a good thing that he was going to get this postmenopausal woman who, who would not have any children, future children. She, she was a, a widow. Her children uh, had died. 
and uh, that he wouldn't have to make any sacrifice out of his own estate. He was adding to his estate without threat. And all the fellow townspeople would congratulate him as a faithful kinsman redeemer. But there was a twist. He had to marry uh, the, the widow Ruth to carry on her husband's name. Now, who would get the land when, uh, when he died? Well, it would be Elimelech's heirs, Malian's heirs. So this man would pay out money in order uh, to uh, redeem this uh, woman, and then that parcel of land would be lost to him forever. But what, would the child that he fathered not be his heir? No, because in Hebrew thought, he would be Elimelech's heir. And this man, you see, was not prepared to sacrifice, to go the extra mile to fulfill the, the word of God. It was too costly. It demanded sacrifice. It wasn't a price that he was willing to pay. Now, doing the right thing is not always easy. Sometimes there is a cost uh, involved. There is a sacrifice to make. See, a young person can rationalize to justify maintaining a, a relationship with an unbeliever. But the Scriptures make it clear, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. And it's a, a painful, emotional sacrifice to give up someone you love because of the Word of God. Sometimes uh, we can alienate our families by professing faith, by going through the waters of baptism. They react negatively to it, but there is a price to pay to obey the Scriptures, to obey the Word of God. The Bible tells us you shall not steal and to fill in our tax forms and our social security forms with honesty may mean a loss in finance. There's a cost to pray, to pay. But you remember Ezra? He devoted himself to the study of the law of God and to do it. There was this passion to do what God had said and what God had revealed. Our attitude be, should be like that of the Light Brigade in Tennyson's uh, uh, poem, Theirs is not to make reply. Theirs is not to reason why. Theirs is but to do or die into the valley. Go the 600. That should be our attitude, to do or die. This is God's Word, and I dare not set myself up and over uh, the Word of God and judgment for it. If He reveals it, I do it. So the, the cost was too high. The consequences were too uh, risky. This man says in verse 6, lest I impair my own inheritance. Lest I impair my own inheritance. There was a risk involved. He thought he might lose his own inheritance. It may be, and some of the commentators suggest that, that he was interpreting Naomi's misfortune as God's displeasure upon him. You remember in chapter 1, she said, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. She had gone to Moab wealthy. She returned to Bethlehem in poverty. She had gone to Moab as a wife. She returned to Bethlehem as a widow. She had gone to Moab as a mother, and she returned to Bethlehem grieving over the loss of her two sons. She had lost 
everything. As she herself said in verse 13 of chapter 1, God's hand had gone out against her. And there may have been this mixture of bad theology and and superstition, but the thought of taking a Moabite into his home was just a step too far that it might provoke the anger and the judgment of God. He wasn't prepared to take the risk. And um, and faith is risk-taking. I love the, uh, that statement made by the founders of the, or was said of the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention in America. They saw the invisible, they heard the inaudible, they thought the unthinkable, and they did the impossible. That they stepped out in faith. You remember Abraham, he, he obeyed, he, he was called, and he stepped out in faith not knowing where he was going. God called him. He had the Word of God, the revelation for God. He didn't know anything about the consequences, leaving his family behind, but in obedience he stepped out and he left those consequences with God. And as uh, those um, opening verses of chapter 11 in Hebrews remind us that Faith is believing that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That those who put him first will never be disappointed. That those who obey him will never lose out. Calvin says, as soon as God issues the command, we must obey even if our senses refuse even if our senses refuse. I remember um, I felt the call of God when I was 18 uh, into some kind of Christian work. And uh, at 19, I went to see my pastor. I had no money, I had no resources, I had no family behind me, but I believe God was calling me. And uh, I stepped out in faith and God not only supplied the fees that you had to pay to the college in those days, but we were able, even during those years, to get married. He, he did exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. So the cost was too high. The consequences were too, too risky. You, you need to be a risk taker. I always think uh, of Epaphroditus in Philippians, uh, uh, because we're told there of Epaphroditus, uh, he almost died risking his life for the work of Christ. Risking. He was a holy, reckless risk taker for God. He he was prepared to step out in obedience to the call of God and the will of God and do what was right and he left the consequences with God. Uh, uh, Risking his life is actually, um, uh, the word actually is, is used in gambling and it means to stake everything on the turn of the dice. And here's this man, for the sake of the gospel, is prepared to step out in faith and to leave the consequences with God. So the cost was too high, the consequences were too risky, and the concern was non-existent. Boaz loved Ruth. This uh, unnamed uh, kinsman redeemer had no inclination, no affection for Ruth. It It was the legal transaction that he... Uh, he was concerned about. He wasn't interested in providing an heir for the, the dead man. He felt that would threaten his own estate. So not only had Boaz uh, a love for, for Ruth, but he, he had uh, 
um, a love for God. He wanted to see uh, God's law implemented in his um, life. Calvin says obedience and love cannot be separated. Obedience and love cannot be separated. One springs from the other. And, and here we find that uh, in verse 10, that Boaz is quite prepared to make the sacrifice. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. That he's prepared to make that sacrifice and do the right thing. And you see, love then makes a, a, obedience a delight. It makes it a pleasure. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We're told of Jacob that he worked for the hand of Rachel for another seven years, but, but they only seemed like a day, the Bible says, because of his love for her. You remember when uh, the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus, recommissions Peter he says to him, feed my sheep. And that uh, command to feed the sheep is said in the context of love. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Lord, you know all things, he says. You know that I love you. Then uh, out of this love for me, do your duty and feed my sheep. So the reason why this kinsman redeemer uh, rejected uh, uh, his um, obedience to the, or forfeited his obedience to the word of God was the cost was too high, the consequences were too risky, and the concern was non-existent. He had no feelings at all, no love for uh, Ruth, and certainly no love for God. The last thing I want you to notice is the result of his disobedience. Look at verses 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. I remember Rachel and Leah give birth, the both of them give birth to the twelve boys who would become the twelve tribes of Israel, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthy, worthy in an Ephrathat. Ephrathat was the, the area, but to be a, an Ephrathite was to be part of the aristocracy, the leading families in that area, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now that's an interesting um, reference, because Tamar gave birth to Perez as a result of a Leverite marriage. Remember, Tamar's husband died, and then his brother uh, died, and then she seduces uh, Judah in order that she might have an heir, a child, and that child is Perez. It's sordid, it's, it's complicated, it's difficult, but from that union, the children of Perez became the, the, the leading uh, clan within Judah. So, so here, the elders, I, I think, are rebuking this unnamed kinsman redeemer by saying what would happen to Boaz and the standing that he would have uh, in the community. 
So Boaz's name would be remembered and Boaz's name would be great. Now let me ask you then in conclusion, what's the name of this unnamed kinsman redeemer? Well, he has no name. There's no name. And that's the Bible's verdict on him. He wanted to preserve his name. He thought to marry Ruth would threaten his name and his inheritance. What became of his descendants? We don't know. But we do know what became of Boaz's and Ruth's descendants because Boaz became the grandfather of David, King David. And obedience, you see, may seem difficult at the time, but obedience yields long-term rewards. The famous painter John Singer Sargent was approached by the uh, faculty of the medical school of John Hopkins University to paint a portrait of a group portrait of its four uh, renowned uh, uh, lectures. One of them, Dr. Welsh, didn't hit it off with the uh, the artist, and they clashed at the settings. And Welsh so angered Sargent that he painted him with facial features that would uh, fade through time and would gradually disappear from the portrait. And the painting of the four doctors still hangs in John Hopkins Medical School, but the face of Dr. Williams Welsh is, is, is not there. It's, it's gradually fading. And those who walk in the halls of the, the famous university can no longer discern what Dr. Welsh looked like. He's anonymous. Our kinsman redeemer here was probably well known during his lifetime. Uh, he, uh, his, his fa- he could have, if he had taken his responsibility, perpetuated the family of Ruth, who knows may have been the grandfather of David. But he failed to do what is right. Doing the right thing may not yield immediate results, but it has long-term benefits. He establishes our name. Our name becomes important to him. Remember the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man dies and goes to hell, and, the, uh, and Lazarus goes to heaven. The the significant thing in that parable is that the rich man has no name. He has no name. He's irrelevant before God. He's of no consequence before God. But Lazarus, that poor man, had a name. He was known by God and he was important to God. And this uh, unnamed kinsman redeemer has no name. His name has been blotted out. He's of no spiritual consequence and no spiritual significance because he didn't do the right thing. And Boaz's name is the name that we uh, remember. It was Robert Murray McShane who said, you know, we, we must live so as to be missed. We need to make our lives count for eternity. We need to leave a legacy. We need to um, um, have a name before God. And that name where we become significant and important to Him comes through our obedience.
So his responsibility before the Word of God, he, he had to, to redeem Ruth, marry Ruth, father a child to Ruth. His reasons for neglecting the law, well, he had no interest in her. He, he didn't love her. Uh, he, he didn't care for her. He was worried about the sacrifices that he would have to make and the results of his disobedience to the Word of God. His name is of unknown. It's absolutely of no consequence. May God help us to have a name before him. You know, there's a man in the Bible called Omri. He is one of the kings in Israel. He's recorded for us in 1 Kings 16. And I conclude with this. And in the ancient world, for years, when people were referring to the land of Israel, they referred to it as the the land of Omri, the land of Omri, the land of Omri. We archaeologists have pointed that out. It's, it's the land of Omri. But in the Bible, he only has seven verses. Seven verses. Because he was of no significance and had no spiritual consequence as far as God was concerned. He was just another rogue king. Make our lives count. Make our lives significant as we live in this world for the glory of God. Amen.